We'll hear argument now in number 9018, Robert D. Gilmer versus Interstate Johnson Lane Corporation. Mr. Allred. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Cert was granted in this case on whether a claim for violation in Age Discrimination and Employment Act is subject to compulsory arbitration. The Fourth Circuit held that arbitration agreement in, in, in an application for employment was enforceable and denied Mr. Gilmer access to the United States District Court for alleged Age Act violation. This case focuses on a conflict between two national policies. On the one hand, there's the policy uh, favoring arbitration that has been announced in Mitsubishi and its trilogy. And then on the other hand is the national policy of eradicating employment discrimination in the workplace. Mr. Allred, don't you have a, a preceding question, which is whether the Federal Arbitration Act even applies Yes. Uh, in this case? Yes. Now, I take it you didn't argue that below, that was not relied upon by you below? Uh, that, that is correct. That is correct. Why not? Well, because in the first off, we thought that the Mitsubishi, I mean, that the Gardner-Denver line of cases were dispositive of the federal arbitration issue. And in fact, and, and we, was, we looked at Tinney, the circuit court case, and the cases that followed that, and we did not appreciate the importance of that argument. In looking at the briefs from the AFL-CIO and the AARP and the other amicus, we are convinced that it is indeed a compelling argument. Well, do you think we should address it here in this court, and are you prepared to have us do so we, we to think, argue the issue? Uh, Justice O'Connor, we think that the enforceability of the agreement under the FAA, uh, you, if you're going to look at the Federal Arbitration Act, you of necessity have to look at Section 1. And, and so it seems to me that, that that issue is subsumed within the entire question that's before this court. And, and, uh, and, as, and as you look at that particular issue, it seems to me that the plain language of Section 1 that says that workers, that all classes of workers engaged in interstate commerce are excluded from the Act is dispositive of the question on the basis of the plain language of the statute. But furthermore, when you look at the, at the legislative history of that Act, which went in, was gone into in great detail in the brief of the AFL-CIO, it, was, it, it, it showed to me beyond all question that it was intended that employment contracts or employment disputes were to be excluded. And the sole purpose in 1925 of the FAA was that business people who wanted to get together and, and agree to arbitrate their disputes, that that would be enforceable. Why do you suppose the Congress referred expressly to seamen and railroad workers if the last phrase dealing with those engaged in, in interstate commerce would have covered all of those categories? Well, I, 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 think, I think, Your Honor, that they referred to seamen and railroads because those were basically the two union groups that were lobbying for the exclusion. But the language went on further and said, it, it mentioned those two groups, but then went further and said, all classes of workers engaged in interstate commerce. And the Tinney case, which limited that to transportation, is really just, was, was at least in retrospect, it appears that, that that court did not have the benefit of the legislative history that this court has. Do you think your client was engaged in interstate commerce the way a railroad worker or a seaman is engaged in interstate commerce, part of the... Well, well, uh, to, to the extent that money is engaged in interstate commerce, uh, a seaman or a transportation worker is not carrying goods, so to speak, 
but money is indeed uh, a, a part of interstate commerce, and so I don't, I would not believe that that statute is to be that strictly in, in, interpreted. Well, I think he's affecting interstate commerce. I'm not sure he's engaged in interstate commerce. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that that, that uh, if you look at the at the first at the second part of the statute, it didn't it didn't really use the word engage, as I recall. Engage was in the second part, and it seems to me that... Well, but the first part is the part we're talking about, right? Section 1. Section 1, yes. And that does say engaged in. That is correct. Seamen or railroad workers or any other person engaged in interstate commerce. Well, I, it, seem, it seems like to me that if you are working in interstate commerce, you are indeed engaged in it. Um, perhaps that may be too simplistic, but at least, at least that's the way it, it, it strikes me. I'm, if, 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 uh, this was enacted, of course, in when? When, when, when was 1925? Is, is that when it was passed? That, that is correct, Your Honor. And uh, the country had, a, or the Congress had a quite different view of what, what interstate commerce was in those days. I guess we did, too. Uh, th that may well be. And the truth of the matter is, is that the, the Federal Arbitration Act ha hasn't really come into, into any real prominence until just recently. In fact, uh, many of the cases that have dealt with whether, or not, with whether or not a compulsory arbitration agreement is enforceable has not even addressed the Federal Arbitration Act, just as the Garden of Denver in the line of cases did. Um, well, Garden of Denver was a collective bargaining contract, wasn't it? Uh, that, is, that is correct, Your Honor, but it seems to me that that, that, that was only the, the substance in which the issue arose in that case because, because their... Uh, the, the, what Justice Powell said in there related to Title VII and employment discrimination. The fact that it arose in a collective bargaining context, I don't think is, is, is any disparity here. It seems to me that, that that arbitration agreement that was involved in Garden of Denver came about through equal bargaining power of the, of the negotiation between the union on the one hand and management on the other to reach that. Uh, when, when Mr. Gilmer and, and the likes of Mr. Gilmer uh, go to work for the securities industry, there is no equal bargaining power there. They, they have no choice. They, 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 either, they either agree to that arbitration. Was the, was the uh, exclusion of employment contracts uh, argued in Gardner Denver? Uh, I do not believe so, Your Honor. And uh, or in any other of the cases that we've dealt with in the employment context? Uh, no, that, 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 is, that, that is true, but, but what was addressed... Everybody, everybody's missed it up until this very case. <laughs> what, was, what was addressed in Garden of Denver was, was the fact that when Congress passed, passed uh, 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 the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, that, that Congress was acting to, to correct an enormous national wrong that had gone on for many years. Uh, age was not included in, in, in Title VII, but it was mentioned in, in, in a good bit of the legislative history, and, and uh, uh, for whatever reason, it was not a, picked up until 1967 when the ADEA was adopted. And, 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 but when the ADEA was adopted, it, it picked up, basically, as this Court has said, Title VII in hoc verba, and this Court has said that when you look at precedents in, uh, for cases involving age discrimination, you should look at Title VII because you're, you're dealing with the same sort of insidious discrimination. Um, we think that, uh, that from the Gardner-Denver line of cases that, that you have, that, that there were two things that, that really prompted the court to operate there was, 
was one was a special characteristic of employment relationship that that existed that that mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, uh, and only and only and Congress felt that only the courts and the procedure that uh, the adoption of the EEOC were the were the way in which that you you could address that uh, uh, when when how are you how how is your client uh, engaged in interstate commerce? How would I define engagement? Uh, how, how is your client engaged in interstate commerce? Oh, oh well. Well, I, my, he, he was manager of uh, he was hired as manager of financial services for uh, uh, for interstate security. Well, how, he, how was he himself engaged in interstate commerce? Uh, well, the rec- there's nothing in the record on that, but but he he was involved in 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 the sale of mutual well, funds. How would we ever decide in this case whether that's a good answer to your claim or not? Well, it, it, what happened before before Judge McMillan was was that. They moved to dismiss, and, and we looked at Gardner Denver, and Gardner Denver said, and the cases that followed that said that whenever Title VII or whenever civil rights or whenever some, any, any form of employment. What would be your submission as to why your client was engaged in interstate commerce? Or what would be my submission? Well, that, that, he, that he was managing the, a group of people that bought and that, that sold mutual funds, mm-hmm. and, and, and mutual fund the... the in 1925, do you think he would have been held to have been involved in interstate commerce? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe God. his uh, maybe his actions uh, would have, might might affect interstate commerce, but well, maybe uh, Congress uh, these days has a, a power to regulate uh, what he's doing. But does that mean that in 1925 he was engaged? In well, now, now if if you if if you looked at it from a narrow standpoint, that engaged meant that you had to be physically engaged. You had to be driving a bus or a truck or in the transportation industry. I, I would agree with you, but I I, I don't. I, uh, uh, but it seems like to me that if 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 you were in the New York Stock Exchange and you were selling General Motors stock that uh, emanated from Detroit, that that broker. That the people in the investment banking industry were engaged in interstate commerce, but there, there was no evidence taken in the trial court on this point. That that is because that, you hadn't raised it. That that is correct, Your Honor. Uh, we just we read the Garner Denver line of cases and saw that this court has has held that whenever employment discrimination is at issue, that arbitration is is inappropriate, and that the courts and 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 the EEOC are the is is the way to go. And Mr. Allred. Uh, uh, one thing that, that, that sort of suggests that your expansive notion of engaged in, in interstate concept may be wrong is that although Section 1 uses the term engaged in interstate commerce, Section 2, the operative provision here, says uh, it applies to a written provision in any maritime transaction or a contract evidencing a transaction involving commerce. Well, now, why would Congress say involving commerce in Section 2 and say engaged in commerce in Section 1 without intending a distinction between the two? Well, uh, Your Honor, there's a, there's, there's a good answer to that in, in one of the briefs. The, the, uh, the, but I think that you can't, uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on the one hand, have, have uh, the situation that says that you are going to allow transactions in commerce to be subjected to compulsory arbitration and then eliminate those that are engaged in that same activity. It seems to me that the that you have to read both of those together that that if that if transactions in commerce involve that then engaged in commerce was that you have to read both sections equally. 
understand that? But maybe, but maybe, but maybe, maybe you know, the transactions were engaged in interstate commerce. The uh, with we 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 submit from that from the Gardner Denver line that that that's dispositive. We think that the that the uh, Federal Arbitration Act uh, is dispositive, Section One. But we also think that that when you look at the uh, at the Mitsubishi test, uh, and, 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 and its cases, it said that, uh, you, you reach the same result. There, there they say, uh, it, it, Mitsubishi said that you will enforce the Federal Arbitration Agreement unless Congress has manifested a contrary intent. And then I think it was the McMahon case said that you can look at Congress, uh, at the manifest intent of Congress wherein something is inherently contradictory to the act itself. I think that was McMahon. And, and here, Congress in Title VII and in the Age Act manifested its intent that the federal court is an integral part of the of instrument in the enforcement of the laws designed to eradicate, eradicate discrimination based on age, race, sex, and religion. And, and there is an irreconcilable conflict we see in the arbitration process and the enforcement of your civil rights laws. Mr. Allred, can I go back to the question Justice Scalia asked you about reconciling involving, uh, contract evidence transaction involving commerce in Section 2 and engaging commerce in Section 1? You said one of the amicus briefs provides a good answer to that question. You know which amicus brief? We've got a lot of them. I think that that was the AFL-CIO addressed that. I believe it was also addressed, addressed in the Lawyers' Committee. Um, and... Uh, and maybe, I, and maybe I'll have an answer for you before I sit down. Um, Somebody will. Uh, at page 13 of the AFL-CIO brief, the... Uh, uh, it is said, we note at the outset that the different syntactical context of the two references to commerce mean that the use of precisely the same connective in the two circumstances would have created a grammatical problem. A transaction could not be said to be engaged in commerce, nor would a reference to class of workers as involving commerce make sense. Thus, there is no necessary inference to be drawn from the simple fact that a different connective was used in the two contexts. You can have a transaction uh, uh, between people engaged in commerce in, or a transaction among people engaged in commerce or a transaction concerning people engaged in commerce, don't you think? Uh, in, indeed, I think that you could probably have uh, a, a, a transaction between two people engaged in interstate commerce, and that transaction was not uh, 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 a commerce in interstate commerce. One, if they meant the same thing, they could have referred to employees engaged in any business affecting commerce or in any business involving commerce. Uh, I, I, you, a very strange way to say it. Uh, but but, but when you look at the legislative history, though, of the Federal Arbitration Act, it is abundantly clear that it was designed only for the business entities where when they got together and made their contracts there to, to, to buy, sell, or what have you, they agreed to arbitrate their dispute. And, and 
We are involved in arbitration a great deal, and, and, and they work extraordinarily well. In only corporations? It applied, was meant to apply only to corporations or partnerships? Is that No, it? no, no. It, can invite, it, it applies to individuals. But, but, but we're talking about a knowing, a, a knowing agreement to, to decide that if you have a dispute over your given, your given uh, uh, contract, that you decided at the outset that you would arbitrate it rather than go to court. Well, is it your contention that your client did not knowingly agree to arbitrate? Uh, that, 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 that is correct. You, that, that was a contention you made in, in the district court, that he did not, he, he did not knowingly agree to arbitrate? I did not say that, that he, we were relying on fraud in the district court. I'm saying that he had no choice. Well, but that's quite different than saying he didn't knowingly do it. Well, he, he, he knew he signed a clause that said under the New York Stock Exchange he would, he would agree to arbitrate his disputes, but he had no idea that it would rely to any sort of civil rights that he had when Congress has passed a law and under the Age Act that says he's entitled to a jury trial, that says that the EEOC has all of this, all of this process there to, to investigate, to, to conciliate, and then under the Age Act, maybe because age is, is so paramount, if, 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 if the EEOC has not acted within 60 days, then, then he may go ahead and elect to bring suit. I, I still don't understand your contention, Mr. Allred. You say that your client, uh, of course, signed the agreement and uh, that he didn't really know what its full effect would be. Is that your contention? It's my contention that he had no idea that it would waive his right if, if and, he was discriminated how, against by, uh, under, under civil... Under and how, how, how did the lower courts resolve? We, we didn't grant certiorari on that question, did we? Uh, you, you granted certiorari on the question of, 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 of whether or not compulsory arbitration is... is uh, uh, Will, uh, is, is available here, can be enforceable yeah, here. And so don't, don't we assume for the sake of the question before this court that your client didn't knowingly sign the agreement? Uh, I, I, I have a hard time. Uh, uh, you, yeah, you can certainly make that assumption, but, I, but I, I, our position is, is that, that as, as relates to the securities industry, that this, the entire security industry has... If you go to work for them, then you have to sign this, this agreement. That, that was true in the McMahon case, too. Anyone making a deal with the brokers uh, had to sign the same sort of agreement. But, but, but the, 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 difference, the difference there, Mr. Chief Justice, is, is that that person dealing with the broker could walk away, and that was a business relationship and not an employment relationship. And it, it is true that Mr. Gilmer could walk away, but if he wanted to go to work in the securities industry, he had no choice but to sign that agreement. Well, and for, does the Federal Arbitration Act make the sort of distinction you're talking about, do you think? Is that, is that what Section 1 means? Well, I think the way in which I read Section 1 is that, is that any employment dispute, whether it's a contract or not, is excluded from the Federal Arbitration Act. Well, uh... Is that all there is to it to uh, hear uh, an employment agreement between your client and his employer? Uh, didn't he want to? What, what was his job? His, 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 he, he was he was hired as a manager. No, but just anybody can't do that. Walking and walk in, walk on off the street and do it. Don't they have to register with the exchange and pass some? Aren't they subject to some rules of the exchange? That, that, that is correct, Your Honor. Well, isn't this an agreement, uh, sort of a commercial agreement between someone who wants to engage in that industry and the and the private regulatory regime? Well, it may be a commercial agreement to the extent as it relates 
to the buying and selling of securities, and that's and that's what the SEC and the SEC. Was he required because he registered to uh, to uh, to sign these, this sort of an agreement about arbitration? I, 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 miss, I did not get your question. Your Was honor. he required by the exchange to uh, sign the, uh, this sort of agreement? That is correct, Your Honor. And so he agreed to that when he wanted into the business. That, that is correct, Your Honor. But, 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 that, but that relates to, to the regulation of the buying and selling of securities. No, but he, agree, he agreed when he, if they were going to, he agreed in order to be permitted to, do his, to get into this business, he registered with the exchange, didn't he? Indeed, he did. Indeed, he did, John. But 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 the but the Securities and Exchange Commission and the New York Stock Exchange is not that body of law that's designed to look after civil rights for people who are discriminated well, against in age. That may, that, that may be. But you say that the arbitration, uh, the Federal Arbitration Act, was just just limited to just uh, commercial agreements. That's that's what the legislature. Well, is isn't this a pretty commercial agreement to somebody? Uh, wants to get in the securities business, and he has to register and live up to their rules. Well, discrimination, dis discrimination by age, Your Honor, or discrimination by sex or religion or race, uh, seems to me, is not commercial. And, 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 and that's... On that, on, that, on that basis, uh, on that basis, you would say, uh, you would say the Federal Arbitration Act would never apply to these sort of things. Uh, I, it, I think that that's the way Section 1 uh, uh, reads, literally, and I think that's the way the legislative history of Section 1 reads. Uh, in, in, in McDonald versus City of West Branch, a, a case decided in 1984, just one year before Mitsubishi, this court said, although arbitration is well suited to resolve in contractual disputes, it cannot provide an adequate substitute for judicial proceeding in protecting the federal statutory and constitutional rights that ninth, Section 1983 of the Civil Rights was designed to safeguard, and I would add to that, and the, and, and, and the other civil rights. And, and in the McMahon case, they said that if the, if the enforcement scheme uh, is, is, is inherently in conflict, if the statutory right is inherently in, in, in conflict with the, with the uh, arbitration agreement, then, then you're not required to do it. And Mitsubishi said if you look at congressional intent, whether it's legislative history or whether it's the, the whole scheme of enforcement, I want, I want this court well knows the entire scheme of the EEOC, that of filing a charge and of its duty to investigate it and, and to conciliate. And, even, and, and Congress did not do, make what the EEOC uh, did binding, that, that even if they found that there was no probable cause, the, the, the individual was still entitled to, uh, to, to have access to the court. Are you familiar with that signal stat agreement uh, or a case in the Second Circuit? Uh, Mitsubishi was the case that involved... No, no. Signal Stat Corporation against Local 475 in 1956, a decision by the Second Circuit. Uh, I, I'm, I'm Were you familiar with it? Oh, no, oh, no, no, I'm, no, I'm not familiar with it, Your Honor. Well, that case held that, uh, that employees of an automobile company... <coughs> weren't engaged in interstate commerce within the meaning of Section 1. And so that was the law of the, the, law of the Second Circuit. Everybody knew it, I suppose. Well, well Tinney, Tinney uh, uh, held... Well, it isn't the first time this issue has ever been raised. No, but, but, but uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, there was a case before this court, I believe, in 1988, in, in which neither side uh, briefed it. That involved a California statute. And the question was whether or not... We denied cert in that case, maybe, unfortunately. 
the, the one that I was referring to, I think it was, was Potter, was, was, that, was that it held that the Federal Arbitration Act preempted a state law. But the, but the question of whether or not Section 1 was involved was not briefed by the parties in that case. The, 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 the one, 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 uh, uh, arbitration just, just clearly is, is not the sort of vehicle by which employment discrimination rights can be vindicated. Uh, there, I, I can go through a whole litany of... What about other kinds of rights? Is all statutory rights are not covered by the Arbitration Act, or, or what, what, what is your position? Well, I th- as, as, I, as, I read, as I read the cases, Your Honor, it's those cases in which the, when the Congress has, has passed laws protecting employees with minimum statutory standards, minimum rights. Like, well, like but just employees, nobody else. Well, well, what about the Sherman Act, for example, a dispute about whether there's been a violation of, uh, of the Sherman Act, two businessmen? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's covered precisely by, 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 the, by, the, by the FAA. If the, if, if the two businessmen have agreed to arbitrate, then it's therefore enforced. That's a public policy, just as, as employment discrimination is a public policy. People shouldn't be able to get out of that any easier than they get out of employment discrimination, I guess, should they? Well, well, but 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 the, the, uh, uh, they agreed to arbitrate those cases. Your client agreed here. Well, well, uh, I, I, I don't think he made. He agreed to arbitrate any discrimination. Any, any, he agreed, in my judgment, to to arbitrate disputes with respect to New York Stock Exchange rules, with respect to things of that nature. But but not not his civil rights. And and I just don't think that 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 that, that was a. A knowing way. What do you mean by civil rights? I mean, it's, it's not a right of his against the government. Uh, you what I mean by civil rights is to, to be free from discrimination because of your age, because of your race, because of your sex, uh, but not religion. Okay. Uh, what do you rest that principle on? That I, I mean, what I don't understand is, see, I can understand a principle that if it's a public policy, you can't arbitrate out of it. But you're not you're not willing to say that you just well I'm, I'm, certain I think, public policies. But what's the basis for distinguishing this kind of public policy from other kinds of public policy? Well, because because Congress passed the law doing it, and then passed this intricate scheme for the enforcement of it. And 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 and, and as as Congress recognized in the Norris LaGuardia Act, and I think this is important here, and this is in the Act itself. It said the individual unorganized worker is commonly helpless to exercise actual liberty of contract and to protect his freedom of labor and thereby obtain acceptable terms and conditions of employment. If, if, if this court affirms the Fourth Circuit, then, then the, the securities industry has, has foreclosed the courthouse door to any person who contends that they've been discriminated against by virtue of any Civil Rights Act, Title VII age. And, and other industries will indeed then have as a condition of employment that you will agree to arbitrate. And I think that it will basically be uh, the death knell of, of, of civil rights as, as started with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's, 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 it's just inconceivable to me that this court will, will, will do that because arbitration is suitable for handling business disputes and handling business disputes between people who knowingly made the decision to opt 
at the outset to, to — Well, isn't the allegation here that this individual knowingly agreed to arbitration? I mean, that's how we take the case, as the Chief Justice inquired about earlier. Well — Don't we — don't we have to accept the case on that premise and go from there? Uh, I, I, I don't — I don't — I don't — I don't — I don't think so, Your Honor. I think that — that — that — it was it, it was just as the Norris LaGuardia Act. It, it, it was not knowing as relates to being discriminated against because of age. Uh, it was it was in, in the context in which you refer to it. It was knowing as 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 relates to being employed in the in the securities industry and and agreeing to arbitrate uh, any disputes that he might have with his employer uh, over over. The, the, the employment, but not with respect to, to Title VII or with respect to the Age Act. Thank you, Mr. Allred. Uh, Mr. Spears, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There's, there's no dispute in this case that the text and the legislative history of the Act, the Age Act, are silent as to any congressional intent to prohibit arbitration. The FAA in that circumstance mandates arbitration unless there exists an inherent and irreconcilable conflict between arbitration and the purposes of that Age Act. That's the issue for this Court to decide. Such a conflict cannot be shown here. Indeed, enforcement of the arbitration agreement here complements the ADA's purposes. A comparison of the Act's purposes with arbitration eliminates a concern about any conflict existing. The Act's purposes are contained in Section 2B of the Act. They're threefold. Number one, to promote the employment of older workers. Number two, prohibit arbitrary age discrimination. And number three, to help employers and employees find ways of meeting the problems impacted with regard to age. The choice of arbitration clearly does not conflict with any of these purposes. To the contrary, the enforcement of the provisions, the enforcement provisions chosen by Congress shows that it preferred that multiple methods be available to employers and employees in meeting problems under that Act. As one alternative, Congress provided for court enforcement. It's noteworthy they provided for court enforcement in any court of competent jurisdiction. It's not restricted to the federal courts. It's very similar to the 33 Securities Act, which this court addressed in the Rodriguez case. This court commented that the wider choice of court provision in that statute indicated a congressional intent of allowing wider choice of alternatives for resolving claims under that Act. Before any litigation, what does Congress provide? Congress expressly favors, in the statute, resolution of disputes through voluntary means. The conciliation, conference, and persuasion mandated in the statute by Congress are certainly more akin to arbitration than they are to litigation. In fact, Congress provides for resolution of disputes in multiple administrative and judicial fora. It's not just limited to the courts. 
Congress never said if you've got an age claim, you have to go immediately to, to the court. An individual, of course, is required to file an EEOC charge, but beyond that requirement, he's allowed to leave it with the EEOC for them to attempt conciliation. The individual can file a claim with state or local agencies. And as noted previously, he can also file a state or federal lawsuit. Mr. Spears, I gather you're arguing that the contract would be enforceable even if there were no Federal Arbitration Act. The Federal Arbitration Act mandates enforcement of it unless there's a contrary indication in the statute, Justice Stevens. It mandates enforcement of a contract evidencing a transaction involving com commerce. And this clearly is. What is it evident, the contract evidence the hiring agreement between the employer and the employee. Now, how does that... It that's the transaction the contract evidences, isn't it? It's not limited to that, Your Honor. As Justice Stevens pointed out, there's a requirement here. This is a one... I'm sorry, Justice White. Excuse me. No, that's Justice Stevens you're talking about. I apologize, Your Honor. I was trying to refer to your comments earlier that the registration agreement here is at the minimum and probably more than a three-party agreement. But are you suing for enforcement of that? Yes, Your Honor. I think you're suing for enforcement of the provision in the employment contract. It's enforceable either way. It doesn't matter. If he had not signed an employment contract, would you still have the same claim? Yes, Your Honor, because it's... You're not relying on the arbitration clause in the employment contract. No, the arbitration clause is part of the rules. The arbitration clause is imposed by the New York Stock Exchange. I understand that. So what you're saying is even had he not voluntarily signed this contract, the result would be the same. I'm not sure I understand that question, Your Honor. I thought you were relying on the arbitration clause in the employment agreement. I think now you're telling me you're not. The arbitration clause is in his registration agreement. There is no separate written employment agreement. The arbitration agreement is in the registration agreement with the New York Stock Exchange, which, by the way, the company is required to get him to agree to, to allow him to engage in a transaction involving the buying and selling of securities. Congress mandates, I'm sorry, the securities New York Stock Exchange requires that anyone that's allowed that privilege has to become registered with them and by becoming registered agrees to abide by the Constitution and rules, which includes the requirement of arbitrating any dispute, Rule 345, with regard to the concern about any voluntariness here. Rule 345 says, it's quoted at page one of our appendix, that any controversy between a representative and any member or member organization arising out of the employment or termination of employment of such registered representative shall be settled by arbitration at the instance of either party. Either party could enforce this. It's not limited to the company. He himself has a right to enforce this. But aside from the employment relationship, this is a business contract that relates between at least the three parties and even outside parties. So your answer is that the transaction involving commerce was his agreement to abide by the rules of the exchange. His application for his registration 
Is, is the, the contract evidencing the transaction involving commerce, yes. And the involving commerce, I see. What did the exchange agree to do in, in, in exchange for his promise? Agreed to allow him to buy and sell securities mm-hmm. or have any involvement with that. Does it sign and the... They agreement? also allowed him to take advantage of the arbitration benefits here to mm-hmm. also. Does, does he sign the agreement? The, 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 does the exchange sign the agreement too and he keeps a copy and they keep a copy? Is that what happens? It comes down from the exchange as the rules. They are the superior approving authority here. It is signed, coincidentally, Justice Scalia, by, by a representative from the company. It is a, called a U4 form. It appears at page 13 of our appendix. Mm-hmm. It is signed by... The thing that's running through my mind while you're looking for it, if the transaction involving commerce is his entitlement to engage in buying and selling over the exchange, why isn't he then a person engaged in commerce? He is by virtue of this agreement. He is a person engaged in commerce. He is not only he's, his, his, his contract, his agreement to be bound by arbitration and all the other rules of the exchange is the contract involving a transaction involving commerce. And involves in commerce because he then becomes a person engaged in commerce. He relates to a transaction involving commerce. Which then brings him squarely within the language of Section 1. Well, Section 2. And Section 1. Well, uh, with regard to that, I think the difference in the language that was noted intends a broad application of Section 2 and a narrow, restrictive application of Section 1 exclusion. I think that difference there means but something. not the way you just described it and explained it to me. Well, I, You want to change your explanation, I guess. Well, I, I guess I'll have to, Your Honor, because I, I, I'm more convinced that the difference in the language gives a, an expansive reading, and indeed the courts have applied an expansive, have given the FAA an expansive reach, not a constricted reach. This court in Pierre v. Thomas enforced the very form, the U-form application form involved in this case. By the way, I found now that... It's not in your appendix. It must be somewhere else. Is it, is it in the joint appendix? I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I apologize. It is the joint appendix at page 14. It's signed by Harry M. Boyd, the executive vice president of the company, which agrees not to employ him unless he, uh, unless he becomes registered as required by the law. So the company, in, above signing this, but it is signed by the company, is also bound by the rules and the restrictions including the arbitration agreement under the New York Stock Exchange. Now, returning to the issue that I believe is before the court, the Section 7 of the Age Act provides that an aggrieved citizen may bring a civil action in a court of competent jurisdiction. It's not mandatory. This is permissive language. Indeed, as Judge... Mr. Spears, uh, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a statute passed that says someone has to sue. And they're all couched in that language. Exactly. Well, Your Honor, and and in, um, um, in the Mitsubishi case, this court noted the fact that the statute, I think it was the Sherman Act, did not require an individual to bring a lawsuit as indicative of the choices that were available. 
I think it's at 473 U.S. at page 637. It was noted in Mitsubishi that the fact that, for example, there are some administrative procedures required by Congress where the individual has no control over that, under the National Labor Relations Act, for example. That's solely up to the NLRB. And Section 10A of the NLRA says that there are no agreement between any parties can divest or affect the jurisdiction of the NLRB. That is a special situation. And therefore, the FAA could not enforce any agreement to arbitrate under that act. But the contrast is important there. The difference between the Sherman Act, the RICO statutes, the two securities acts, that, that allows any individual, that allows an agreed individual to go not only into federal court, but to any court. Your point, then, is that the Act puts it in the hands of the aggrieved individual rather than of some agency or board? Yes, Your Honor, and gives them a choice to go to court or not go to court. I guess that more precisely makes my point, to, to choose other four that are available. The, um, this includes, of course, private settlements. They're allowed under the Age Act. Another example is, of course, arbitration. They're encouraged by the FAA. Uh, and arbitration is not mentioned in the statute. Under McMahon, it is not necessary to mention it in the statute. Significantly, Congress has not eliminated arbitration as an alternative under the Age Act. The silence of the Age Act, we think, is significant. Indeed, the need for more alternatives to litigation is ever-increasing in this country. Even as far back as 67, when Congress passed the law, they noted in Section 2 of the Act that the numbers of older workers are, quote, great and growing. More recently, according to a U.S. Census Bureau report quoted in one of our amicus briefs, by the year 2000, 20 percent of our population will be 55 or older. By the year 2030, almost 33 percent will be 55 or older. Now, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is having difficulties. In fact, they're having difficulties managing the, their workload now of EEOC charges involving age claims. Imagine how much more difficult it's going to be. Noted in one of our amicus briefs in the Harvard Law Review report, article, 104 of Harvard Law Review, a startling fact where the former chairman of the commission, Clarence Thomas, in 1988, where the commission reported that it may have mishandled as many as over 7,500 complaints of age discrimination over the previous five years by failing to act on them before the two-year statute of limitation ran. Congress's silence says something. It says there ought to be these alternatives available for individuals to resolve these claims. They shouldn't be restricted to only go to, going to court. Arbitration can clearly help mitigate these problems. Older workers don't have as much time to wait for a remedy. Extended litigation deprives them of an earlier remedy. Alternatively, quicker resolution through arbitration complements Congress's goals. It doesn't conflict with them. If reinstatement is found to be an appropriate remedy in arbitration, it can be quicker, cheaper, and certainly less adversarial than, than litigation. Isn't that better for everyone? It's much easier to, for an employer to reinstate someone within a matter of months than it is when the time, litigation cost, and yes, even the emotional involvement of litigation have made that prohibitive 
Well, Mr. Spears, wouldn't the arbitration award be subject to some minimum form of judicial review after it were made? Yes, yes, Mr. Chief Justice, but, but it would be reviewed much quicker because it would be resolved more quickly as a general proposition. And I'm focusing now on the time. Whatever the review might be allowed, it, whether it's affirmed or, or, or overturned or sent back for a reevaluation, it, all the parties are better off to have that resolved sooner than it is now in, in litigation. Yes, but I'm wondering whether your, your analysis is accurate. You point to the delay. Are you just talking about administrative delays before a, a case uh, goes to the court if, uh, where you're simply suing? No, Your Honor, I was really comparing that with litigation itself. Well, but you're going to have litigation itself would certainly describe what you have when an arbitration award is reviewed, wouldn't you? I mean, you have an action in the district court to review the award, and if the people are dissatisfied, they could appeal to the Court of Appeals. But it's not a de novo review. It, it would be a far... A more limited inquiry. A more limited review is, is authorized and only is authorized by Section, uh, I think it's 10 and 11 of the Federal Arbitration Act. And the... Deterrence of the act, another goal of the act, another goal of encouraging people to file charges, would, would also be enhanced by resolution through arbitration, where a co-worker sees that another co-worker had his age claim rights vindicated through arbitration quickly, or certainly more quickly than might be available in litigation. That co-worker, if he or she is indeed a victim of age discrimination, is going to be more likely to pursue her rights under the, sta under the statute. This is particularly important where you're talking about victims that don't have the economic wherewithal to take on expensive and time-consuming litigation. What if the co-worker is denied relief in arbitration? <clears throat> I, I think I would assume the individual would understand that was based on the merits and the, res the resolution of that particular claim. Knowing that, that a co-worker, anyone, can get to arbitration quicker, Justice Blackman is, is my point there, that... that Whatever the, uh, the ultimate resolution, as long as the rights can be vindicated, as this Court has said, then deterrence is also being fulfilled. Mr. Spears, do the arbitrators have the power to award the kind of systemic relief that might be available in court under the ADEA? Justice O'Connor, I'm not aware of anything in these rules that would prohibit them from doing that if the facts in a particular arbitration uh, were to justify that. There's been a recent amendment to one of the rules, I'm sorry I can't quote you the particular rule, which does allow for multiple parties to participate in How an about arbitration. about a class action? Your Honor, I think it's very similar to a class action. In an age case, of course, class members have to opt in. They have to exercise that option to opt in. That is very analogous to, the, to this New York Exchange rule that allows multiple parties to participate. And, Your Honor, with regard to, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Justice O'Connor, I, I think that there are no, I know there are no restrictions in these rules on the power to remedy that the arbitrator has. My view is that the arbitrator has all the same power to remedy that's available under the statute. Arbitration, of course, finally also helps reduce the overburdened workload of the Commission, state and local agencies, and hopefully the federal courts. The Court has found that other statutes reflecting equally important public interest to be entirely appropriate for arbitration. 
The reasons are clear. The public interest in those statutes were not diminished by arbitration. The liberal policy favoring arbitration under the AJAC, I'm sorry, under the FAA, must be applied absent affirmative congressional intent to prohibit it. I would like to turn next to the argument, as I understand it, of the petitioner, that, that somehow the Age Act is, is different. The plaintiff, in my view, attempts to create a conflict between the purposes of the Age Act and the purposes of the, of the line of cases of the FAA cases of this court. Indeed, he seems to argue that unless Gardner-Denver is allowed to control the circumstances here, then Gardner-Denver must be reversed. Well, those are two poles apart, and there's a lot of ground in between. Our position is very clear. There's no need to even consider reversing Gardner-Denver or any progeny of, of, of that decision. The, the factual differences, the legal issue differences, and the analysis differences under the different lines of cases are so stark that there's no, that there's no conflict at all. And therefore, both purposes, both statutes' purposes can be satisfied. What would you say is the principal distinguishing feature between uh, uh, Gardner-Denver in this case? Your Honor, I, th I think at bottom, it's the collective bargaining context of Gardner-Denver. That dominated the court's consideration, and I would submit the ultimate resolution of that claim. The, the court focused in that case upon, and which, by the way, was an already completed arbitration. It was not an issue of enforcing an arbitration agreement. The arbitration had already been done under a union's collective bargaining arbitration mechanism. And the court said in Gardner-Denver that only the contractual claim had been resolved. Now, here comes the company saying, well, we won the discrimination issue in, in arbitration. That forecloses the statutory claim. That's what was rejected. Because what you had there was a, a conflict between two public policies. One, encouraging collective bargaining and the salutary benefits of collective bargaining, including resolution of claims through arbitration. But that sort of arbitration has nothing in common with the arbitration under the New York Exchange Rules. Mr. Gilmer was never a member of, uh, of a union. He, he remains in full control of selecting the arbitrator, deciding what evidence to submit, um, uh, there is no one between him and the resolution of his claim. Did the arbitration in uh, Gardner-Denver purport to determine the statutory issue? I thought it was purely an arbitration about the contract dispute and not about any, any statutory violation. I'm, that's what I meant to say, Justice Scalia, is that it, Is that what you've that, been saying? I didn't... No, the Supreme Court said that the arbitration only resolved the contractual claim under the collective bargaining contract. And the company apparently was trying to take that contract resolution and saying, well, then that controls, through preclusion, that controls the results under the statute. And that's at bottom what made the difference in that case, because the court was clearly concerned about the fox and the hen house problem. Because clearly, and it said so in that decision, that letting the two entities that are the, the type, I'm not talking about the specific ones in that case, but the, the, the employer and the union, both of which have been accused, not in that case, but in other cases, of discrimination. 
And the act was passed to address that sort of stuff. So they clear, the court clearly did not feel comfortable with the union being in charge of even the ultimate decision of whether it went to arbitration. What about the McDonald case? Um, that was a statutory right. Yes, Your Honor, under 1983, as I recall yeah. the facts of that case. And it's no different than Gardner-Denver. It also was a collective bargaining. You said the difference in Gardner-Denver was they didn't resolve the statutory issue. And then I asked you about a statutory case, and you say they're exactly the same. Well, there was a collective bargaining arbitration in McDonald also, an already completed arbitration. And the issue there was, again, preclusion, whether or not the resolution of the contract issue controlled the statutory issue under 1983. So the cases I see them as just being identical to one another. I, I thought, wasn't the statutory issue submitted to the arbitrator in McDonald? I thought it was. Your Honor, I don't recall. I'm sorry. I thought it was. But at least it's, uh, it's similar to Alexander in that uh, it involved a collective bargaining agreement. So that the person who had agreed to the arbitration was not the individual who was a, whose statutory right had allegedly been taken away. That's right. But rather somebody else purporting to act on, on, on that individual's behalf. And that probably controlled whether or not the issue even went to arbitration. That is, that is the fundamental difference, and, and, and that's, of course, not present here. There is no conflict like that here. There's not even the potential for the conflict here. The... In closing, I want to point out certain unique facts about this case that I think fully support the compliance with the FAA's mandate for arbitration here. The facts are peculiarly appropriate for arbitration. Mr. Gilmer is an experienced executive. He's not a worker moving goods in commerce. For 20 years, he's been registered with this very stock exchange that he registered with, with this respondent. He's worked in the industry for 28 years. The registration agreement is a customary requirement of stockbrokers buying and selling securities in this highly regulated industry. Indeed, the agreement is no different than the very type of agreement this court has found enforceable against customers, far less sophisticated, in McMahon and, and the Rodriguez case. This arbitration agreement is an integral part of the exchange's self-regulatory... Uh, Mr. Spears, can I ask you this? I, I, would, it, would your position not be precisely the same if a non-union employer just required all his employees to agree to arbitrate any dispute? Statutory, civil rights, anything else? If, if, if they're under... If they comply, if they come under the FAA, yeah. Right, if they're engaged in commerce, yeah. So you don't really need, I mean, I understand it strengthens your case, but, but I think your basic position is that uh, absent a collective bargaining agreement, uh, an employer-employee agreement to arbitrate all disputes, including statutory disputes, is enforceable. I think that's really what it comes down to. And I'm not saying you're yeah. wrong, but I think that's what you're arguing. Yes, it, it, it's enforceable, uh, particularly in light of the FAA, because right. that mandates enforcement of that. Your Honor, one final point I would like to point out. In their argument that the, that the purpose of the uh, AGE Act is so paramount or so important that it ought to be treated differently, and I assume they feel the same way about Title VII, in our view, that was rejected in Mitsubishi. That argument was made in Mitsubishi that the importance of the... Um, uh, act there was so paramount that, that the court should not allow enforcement under the FAA. In, 
In that decision, Justice Blackman pointed out that a concern for statutorily protected classes provides no reason to color the lens through which the arbitration clause is read. Provides no reason. You don't look at, is the class age victims, or is the class black employees, or is the class securities customers. That's been rejected in, in, in uh, Mitsubishi. Indeed, in 19, October 1989, this court rejected, in my view, a very analogous case, uh, the Second Circuit case in Byrd versus Shearson Lehman. It vacated and remanded that in light of the Rodriguez decision. While I certainly don't know the precise reasons, it seems to me that the strong language in McMahon, Rodriguez, based on Mitsubishi, has eliminated this sort of public policy, this sort of value judgment that somehow this statute is different or this statute is so important that arbitration just should not be allowed to touch it. I think it's implicit in the vacation and remand of that 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 argument is long gone. That, of course, is what this court said was the primary underpinning of the Wilco v. Swan. In fact, in Mitsubishi, the court also rejected the Second Circuit's uh, standard known as the American Safety Equipment Standard, which was, again, a case uh, that, that focused on the Sherman Act, in that case was viewed to be so different and so important that it could not be arbitrated. And I think it was the McMahon case or Mitsubishi, this court took those and, and point by point rejected the underpinning. Sherman, was that the Bird case an employment case? Uh, it was an ERISA case, Your Honor, involved um, uh, employment benefits under ERISA. And it, the, the, the Second Circuit Bird decision, uh, reading that is exactly, indeed, it relies upon Gardner, Denver, Barentine, and McDonald, the same way the plaintiff does here. Has the Second Circuit regularly had cases uh, dealing with employees of securities companies? Um, Your Honor, maybe more often ever because of New York. Have you ever adjudicated one? Uh, not out of New York, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Spears. The case is submitted.